spirit, spirit of the living God who with the Father and the Son reigns forever. We give to you now our hearts and our minds, our ears, so that we might hear the word that you have inspired and given to us through the prophet. Teach us your truth, Lord, and strengthen us, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated and take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. On this first Sunday of Advent season, we are going to look at a passage that, well, is not often looked at, let's just say that, uh, because of the history in it. It's a passage that to our reading initially might seem very obscure and uh, not understandable to us. But it is a passage in God's Word, a vision that the prophet Daniel received, which actually takes us in the vision right up to about 150 years approximately before Jesus Christ came into the world. We're going to look at this uh, at an important individual today, an important individual who was never named in the Bible, but who is described for us in verse 23 of chapter 8 as a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue. Now, two Sundays ago, we looked at Daniel chapter 7, where he records for us an amazing vision that he received and the interpretation that went along with that vision. And the vision was of four different uh, hybrid mutant animals, as well as a courtroom scene. The animals represent kings or kingdoms of the past, in the future for Daniel, but in the past for us. This courtroom scene in which the Ancient of Days is seated and the Son of Man comes riding on the clouds into the presence of this court, courtroom where he receives a kingdom from God Almighty. Now this vision gives to us both an allegory of the full course of human his, history and the climax of history itself when Jesus Christ will return in power and in glory. The vision of Daniel chapter 7 contains then this sweep, this whole course of the history of our world from the time of Daniel in Babylon, the destruction of the final Antichrist at the end of this age, and then the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Now Daniel 7, which we looked at two weeks ago, brings to an end the Aramaic portion of this, of this book. Remember, this is a unique Old Testament book in that part of it was written in Hebrew and part of it in Aramaic. The Aramaic portion comes to an end in chapter 7, and now chapter 8, which we're going to look at this morning, is in Hebrew. We don't know that, of course, from our English Bibles, but the original manuscripts point this out to us. Now, there are many theories as to why Daniel wrote part of the book in Aramaic and part of it in Hebrew, and uh, there are probably ten different theories. Uh, the best answer that I have heard is that the Aramaic portion of Daniel was written because um, Aramaic was the universal language of that day, the lingua franca of that day, and so portions of the book which deal with God's dealings with all of the Gentile nations is in this universal lang language, whereas in the Hebrew portion, at the end of the book, 
focuses in on the visions that Daniel sees that pertain to the history of Israel, the people of God, hence the Hebrew language at this point in time. Now keep in mind as we look into the details of chapter 8 this morning, the chapters 8 through 11, almost to the end of the book, is primarily about two kingdoms, the kingdom of Persia and the kingdom of Greece. We're going to talk about both of those kingdoms this morning. But chapters 8 through 11 are also a paradigm, a paradigm by which we can view all of his, his history, and it culminates in the final conflict at the end of the age, a great universal resurrection from the dead, and the inauguration of God's people receiving the kingdom and reigning with Christ forever. So the full course of human history in Daniel chapter 7, and here now in Daniel chapter 8, we have a picture of about 400 years of his, of his history, but most of the vision is about 200 years, 200 years after the time of Daniel. The camera lens of Daniel 7 then gives us this wide panoram- panoramic vision of the history of our world. Here in Daniel 9, the camera lens zooms in. And it zooms in primarily, as I said, on this 200-year period. It is the main focus from the year 350 B.C. to the year 164 B.C. Hence, I said to you, this brings us right up to about 150 years before Jesus Christ came into the world. So understand this before we look at this passage. This is a prophecy, but it is a prophecy that has already been fulfilled. Let me say it again. Daniel 8 is a prophecy about the future, but it has already been fulfilled in history. For Daniel, it was about the future of his people. For us, it's already happened. So, The question that might be going through many of our minds today is this. Okay, John, you're going to take us back to this period of time, 200 years before Christ, and uh, it's going to be a history lesson. Yes, it is. And you might be thinking, what in the world is the relevance for us today of a prophecy that was fulfilled so long ago before Jesus Christ came? Well, let's look at the, prof, the, prof, the prophecy first and see if we can answer that question. First thing I want you to see is that Daniel has an important vision and it says in verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. He's referring to chapter 7 there. So this tells us that this vision takes place toward the end of the Babylonian era. This is just before Belshazzar is assassinated when the Persians take the the kingdom from him. This occurs then when Daniel and the people of Judah are approximately 40 years into their captivity. So the year approximately, the third year of Belshazzar's reign, is the year 550 B.C. So Daniel is about to see what is going to happen in the future, but for him, or we would say today, looking back on it, it's the near future. It's not a thousand years out. It's approximately 400 to 200 years out. Now, the vision skips over the the Babylonian era, and the camera zooms in on the second and the third beasts, and on another little horn. A little horn 
who is not the same as the horn we saw in chapter 7, the Antichrist of the future. Look at verse 2. He says in verse 2, the vision I saw, in the vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, I was by the Ulai Canal. Now Susa is located in what is now southwest Iran. It was about 160 kilometers east of the Babylonian capital in what the Jews would later consider to be the center of the empire of Persia. Susa was the capital of Persia, so it's clear from these opening words that what we're about to see is concerning Persia and then the kingdom that is going to come after Persia. Now I want you to jump ahead. We're gonna, we're gonna be jumping back and forth in, in, chap, in chapter eight. I want you to go to verse 16, verse 16. Verse 16 is where the interpretation of the vision comes. And the angel Gabriel is told here to tell Daniel the meaning of this vision. Verse 16, Gabriel, this, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Look at verse 17. Gabriel says, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Look now at verse 19. Gabriel says, understand the vision Sorry, sorry, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Now when you and I read language like that, which is speaking about the end, what do we immediately think? You and I immediately think that what Daniel is being told here is about the end times, about the events at the end of the world, still future for us. But this is not I underscore this. This is not what Gabriel was saying or Daniel was seeing. Daniel sees in this vision the end, yes, but the end of an era. That is the end of what we might call the Old Testament period of time. And he sees what Gabriel says is a time of wrath at the end of this Old Testament period. A time of wrath that that culminates in a man who is referred to here in verse 23 as a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue or of deceit. So the time of the end referred to here, this time of wrath, is not about the time just before the second coming of Christ. Rather, it is about the time just before the first coming of Christ. Now, if we have that clarification in our minds, we can now proceed and understand what is said here. Let's look at this important vision. What exactly did Daniel see? Well, in verse 3, we read that he saw a ram, a ram with two long horns. Verse 3, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing by the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. So what was this ram that he saw? We'll go down now to verse 20. Verse 20 gives the interpretation of this vision. And verse 20 says, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So this is what we call the Medo-Persian Empire. And over time, the Medes, who were dominant in the beginning of this empire, empire, they lose their prominence, and the Persians take over. Daniel was a very old man when the Persian Empire ruled the world. Now look at verse 4, because in verse 4 we read 
that this ram, Persia, is going to expand. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So Persia now expands to the west. It conquers Babylon, then Syria and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, right up to the borders of Greece, and that's important, right to the borders of Greece. It expands to the north. It conquers Armenia and the area today around the Caspian Sea. It expands to the south. It goes down, conquering Egypt and Ethiopia. And Medo-Persia became a mighty empire. But its days were numbered. Daniel sees something next in verse 5. As I was thinking about this, verse 5, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. A goat with a prominent horn. Now notice this goat is from the west. This is west of the Persians. It is west of Asia Minor. It is, and it also moved incredibly fast, so much so that it says that in the vision, the goat doesn't even touch the ground. It's like a jet plane moving uh, in a westward direction or an eastward direct, direct direction. Daniel saw the fury and the power of this goat toward the Persian ram. Look at verse 6. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram ferociously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the, the ram from his power. Now in verse 21, we're given an explanation as to what this goat with this one prominent horn really is. Gabriel tells Daniel the meaning of this goat. Verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. So for many of us, we're going back into our high school history class because we understand that this was the Greek empire, and its first king was, who was the first king? Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great. And we know from his history that Alexander was possibly one of the greatest military tacticians of all time. He smashed the Persians and their defenses with lightning speed coming from the east. In the year 334 BC, Alexander launched a ruthless attack against Persia. And in this one battle that happened, Alexander had a small army of 35,000 men attacking the Persian army of 100,000 men plus 10,000 men on horse, horseback. Alexander completely routed, routed the Persian army uh, to the loss of 20,000 Persians killed. And it is said, this could be an exaggeration, that, Greek, that Greece only lost 100 troops. By the year 331, the, part, the Persian defenses were completely decimated in another final battle. In one of the most staggering military successes in history, Alexander the Great conquered the whole of the Near East, and he extended his reign as far as the borders of India. But this was soon to change. Daniel says next in his vision, in verse 8, that the goat became very great, and so Alexander did. 
But at the height of his power, when he'd conquered the known world, his large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. We know that at the age of just 33, Alexander the Great became gravely ill, and he died. And when he died, his massive Greek empire fractured into four different kingdoms, and each of those was ruled by a general in Alexander's army. Verse 22 says, verse 22, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Four kingdoms now in place, not as powerful as the kingdom of Greece under Alexander. But these four kingdoms are all Greek in nature. It is, as it were, an extension of Greece. And through these four, Hellenistic thinking, the thinking of the Greeks, spread throughout the Near East. But they did not have the same power that Alexander had. And while the four kingdoms were all committed to the glory of Greece and all things Greek, they fought with each other. And out of the four, there were two, the two that became the most powerful, the Ptolemies in Egypt, they were located in Egypt, and the Seleucids, who were located in what today we know as Syria. Now notice verse 9. Verse 9 is key. We come now to one small growing horn that arises out of these Greek kingdoms. Verse 9. Out of one of them, that is the Seleucid kingdom, which is in Syria approximately, came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. You see that phrase? The beautiful land. You you know immediately which land we're speaking about here. So this verse, verse 9, actually abbreviates about 150 years of of history when the Syrian Seleucids and the Egyptian Ptolemies were in conflict with each other. And these clashes continued until out of the Seleucid Empire there came another horn, a horn that is mentioned here in verse 9. Now look at verse 9 again, because it says that this horn started out very small, but, notice the words, grew in power. Grew in power how or where? Grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land. Now Daniel did not know the name of this king when he saw it in the vision. But from history we can easily identify him. His name was Antiochus IV, commonly known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes, who became the eighth ruler of the Seleucid kingdom. He reigned from 175 to 164 B.C. Now, Antiochus started out small because he was not the actual heir to the Seleucid throne. His nephew was, but through bribery and deceit, the master of intrigue, as it says here, Antiochus became king, and within a very short time, he started his, his, con- his conquests. He became king, and it says here that he grew strong toward the south, That is, he invaded into the Ptolemy area of Egypt. He went south from Syria into Egypt. It also says here he grew strong toward the east. He then conquered the lands that the ancient Persians had, as far as Armenia. And then it says, and toward the beautiful land. Toward the beautiful land. Now this is referring to the promised land. 
the promised land where the nation of Israel was. So Israel now is going to be squashed between two opposing powers, the Syrians from the north, the Egyptians from the south, squashed between the two. Now this is the reason the vision climaxes in this evil king. The ram and the goat, Persia and Greece, are just the warm-up act to what happens in this vision, to the headliner in Daniel's vision. They are not the main attraction on the stage. After the one-horned goat's kingdom split into four, another little horn emerges, and he begins to expand his realm. And in this vision, Daniel is shown that the successive rise and fall of these kingdoms culminates in this little horn, Antiochus. And he is very, very important in the history of God's people of the past. He was a cruel and a bloody man. And he was determined to crush all forms of worship among the, among the Jews. He was determined to force feed paganism to God's people and to establish the Greek gods as the gods of Israel. Now notice what Daniel says at the end of chapter 8, verse 27. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled at this vision. Now why this reaction? Why did this vision completely deplete him and make him ill? Remember that Daniel has now been in captivity for 40 years when he saw, he saw this. Daniel is longing for his freedom. He was longing for an end to the oppression and the persecution. And what God showed him in this vision is that more oppression and more persecution lay ahead in the future plan of God for his people. And what exactly does Daniel see and have explained to him about Antiochus? Well, Daniel sees a number of things. First, I want you to notice Antiochus attacks God's people. He does violence against the people of God. Verse 10 says, verse 10, it grew up until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Now, immediately, that sounds to us like angelic beings. But remember, this is apocalyptic imagery that is being used. Symbolic language is used here. And in the, con the context, then, the, the host of the heavens, or the starry host, refers to the people of God. That is, the people who worship the king of heaven. And this becomes clear to us in the interpretation, if you go to verse 24, Verse 24 says that he will destroy the powerful people and the holy people. He will destroy the holy people. He attacked the people of God and he trampled on them. And the word trample here indicates a severe persecution. Now we know from history that this actually happened. There are two books that are a part of what we call the Apocrypha. Have you heard of that name before. The Apoc Apocrypha is a, a grouping of books that was written in what we call the intertestamental period. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the period between the Old Testament and the New. These Apocrypha books are history books. They're not a part of the Bible. They're not holy scripture, but they are historically accurate books. 
If you get a Catholic version of the Bible, you will find the apocryphal books are in the Catholic Bible. They were also in English Bibles, King James Version Bibles in the past, but were taken out because people thought that they were a part of the Bible, when in reality they're not. They're just simply historical books. Two of those books are called First and Second Maccabees. Now these books are very important to us. They record for us this history of time between the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. Gives us this period of what happened during these 400 years when the age of the prophets came to an end and the age of Christ dawned on this world. They provide us with accurate historical information. Second Maccabees tells us what Antiochus did, the horrific things he did his obsession with forcing the Jews to abandon their beliefs and, conform or, and, and get them to conform to Greek ways and Greek religion. Let me read just a short portion. Antiochus ordered his, his soldiers to cut down without mercy everyone they encountered and to butcher all who took refuge in their homes. It was a massacre of young and old, a slaughter of women and children, a butchery of virgins and infants. There were 80,000 victims in the course of three days. Now this is just one example from Maccabees of what Antiochus did. And if you look at verse 24, Daniel 8 verse 24, it confirms exactly what this book says. Gabriel says in verse 24, he will cause astounding devastation. He attacked God's people. He also attacked God. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. It set itself up. That is this, this horn. He set it himself up to be as great as the prince of the host. The prince of the host is a reference to God himself. Antiochus acted arrogantly, even against God. And he did this in a number of ways. But primarily by attacking the temple in Jerusalem where God was honored daily with daily sacrifices. Remember, Daniel is in Babylon when he gets this vision. He knows that when he was a young boy, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed. But he also knew that in the future, the temple would be rebuilt. And it was when Nehemiah and Ezra came back. But now, the temple would be destroyed again after it had been rebuilt. Verse 25 says he will consider himself superior. In his own mind, he thought that he was not just as great as God, but superior to him. He thought of himself that, uh, uh, he thought so much of himself that he added to his name this title, Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. You might think of the English word epiphany, which means appearing. Epiphanes means God made manifest. He thought he was God. He thought that he would make God visible. Friends, there is only one who makes God visible, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. But Epiphanes thought that he would make God visible, and verse 25 says, he took his stand against the prince of princes. Now, the persecution of God's people that happened at this time and Antiochus' defiance of the living God began approximately the year 170 B.C. 170 B.C. 
But three years later, in the year 167 BC, Antiochus ratcheted up this persecution to an almost inconceivable level as the Jews dug in in their resistance to his reign, and he moved mercilessly against them. He issued the order that the regular ceremonial observances to Yahweh were now forbidden. He brought an end to the daily sacrifices in the temple which were offered to God. This is what Daniel 8 envisions. To ensure that the temple was not used for sacrifice anymore to the God of, his, of, his, of Israel, Antiochus went one step further, and he did what no one in history had ever done before. What he did is mentioned three times in the final chapters of Daniel. Look at verse thir- thir- 13. The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, get this next line, the rebellion that causes desolation. Now hop out of chapter 8, go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 31. I want you to see it's repeated several times. Chapter 11, verse 31. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now go to chapter 12, chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 11. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So three times Daniel sees this abomination of desolation. Now, what was this abomination that Antiochus committed? Antiochus went into the temple with his, with his Greek troops, and he set up in the Holy of Holies a pagan altar, a pagan altar to the Greek god Zeus, whom the Romans would call Jupiter. A pagan altar to Zeus, above the altar of burnt offerings, Now, by installing that, he made it impossible for the faithful priests to bring the morning and evening sacrifices to the Lord. But Antiochus didn't stop here. On this altar to Zeus, in the Holy of Holies, he sacrificed a pig, a pig. He made the temple unfit for true worship. It became desolate. This was a direct attack on God. He did one other thing, and it's found in verse 12. It says that it, he, he, it prospered. He prospered in everything it did, and truth, here's a key line, truth was thrown to the ground. This means that he sought to destroy God's word. Look again at verse 25. Verse 25 says, he will cause deceit to prosper. Lies will prosper instead of truth. And the first book of Maccabees sheds light on this. It tells us the Antiochus prohibited the Jews from following God's word. The burnt offerings, the sacrifices that were to be done in the temple, they were out, out, outlawed. He ordered the Jews to profane the Sabbath day, to profane their holy uh, feasts like Pentecost and, and, Pass, and Pass, Passover. He ordered that pagan altars would be built all throughout the land and that the Jews were to sacrifice pigs and other unclean animals on these altars. He commanded that they were not allowed to have their sons circumcised. 
so that they would forget God's law. We could go on and on and on. Maccabees also tells us that if any of the books of the law were discovered, that is the scrolls, the parchments of the Old Testament prophets, if they were discovered, they were to be torn up and burned, and if any Jew was found with one of those scrolls, he was to be killed immediately. You know what Antiochus tried to do? He tried to completely destroy the very foundation of Israel's worship and life. And verse 12 says, he prospered in everything that he did. This stern-faced master of intrigue, this master of deceit, was all about lies. Now, this is an important vision that Daniel received. But let's look at the important question that comes out of the important vision. And this important question was asked by two heavenly beings between the giving of the vision to Daniel and the receiving of the interpretation of it. So verse 13, look at what it says. Daniel now, after seeing this vision, hears this. I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take? How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, that is the temple, and of the host, God's people, that will be trampled underfoot. How long is this going to go on for? It's the question that gets asked by these heavenly beings. Now the question that these angels asked must have also been the question that Daniel was thinking. I mean, it's certainly the kind of question that you and I would ask whenever we get persecuted or whenever we hear of persecution breaking out against God's people somewhere in various parts of the world, against our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, this is the question we always ask when, when suffering goes on for so long. How long, O Lord? It's the question we always ask when when evil seems to have the upper hand and and truth is disregarded and pushed aside. How long, O Lord, until you step in? How long until you intervene? How long must this go on until you bring it to an end? David cried out in the 13th Psalm, the words that resonate in our hearts and, and in the hearts of those in Christ who've gone before us. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? The angel's question here is about this persecution that would come through Antiochus. How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of God's people being trampled on? He's referring to this altar erected to the Greek god Zeus, this transgression, this rebellion that made the temple desolate, desolate, empty of the true worshipers of God. How long will the sanctuary be given over to paganism How long will God's people be trampled on? Now the answer comes in the 14th verse. Now we're getting into a difficult part here in this vision. The answer comes in verse 14. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now what does this mean? 2,000 mornings and evenings. Well, we've come now to the use of numbers 
in apocalyptic writing. The numbers are usually enigmatic, and they are symbols. They are symbol-laden. They are, they are meant to convey something here to Daniel and to us. Remember, Old Testament prophecies are usually given in round num- numbers, and they are symbol-laden. So there is some difficulty for us here, and there are different interpretations. Let me take a shot at it. Can I try? 2,300 mornings and evenings, or evenings and mornings. Now remember, evenings and mornings, or mornings and evenings, are the Bible's way, in some cases, of simply saying one day. Think of Genesis 1, and there was morning and there was evening the first day. So if we approach this 2,300 days as simply morning and evening, then we actually come to 1,150 days, which is very close to the 1,290 days that is mentioned in chapter 12. Now, if we divide 2,300 and divide it by 365 days in a year, then we arrive at a period of approximately six years and four months. Now, six years and four months is interesting because we're talking here about about a long period of time or what would seem to be a long period of time, but in the Bible, seven years is often used to describe what we would call a full period of time, a full period of time in which God's judgment is inflicted. So, for example, in Judges 6 verse 1, we are told that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years God gave them over to the Midianites. In 2 Kings 8 verse 1, tells us about the time of the prophet Elisha, and it says the Lord has decreed a famine in the land that will last seven years. Remember Joseph taken into captivity into Egypt, he's there under Pharaoh, and uh, Pharaoh has a dream, Joseph interprets the dream, and the dream is about seven years of famine in Egypt. You see, seven appears to be the Bible's number for a full duration of time in which bad things happen to God's people. But 2,360 days is six years and four months. In other words, it falls short of seven, or it is less than the normal seven in which bad things happen. So the number in one sense is a symbol, but the number says to us, shortened, shortened. It's not the full duration of time. Now as difficult as the use of numbers here is, I am convinced that what is being said here is that the oppression under Antiochus will not last a full seven years. It will not last as long as the Midianites were oppressed or as the Midianites oppressed God's people. It won't last as long as the famine in Elisha's day or the famine in Joseph's day in Egypt. The time that Israel is oppressed and the sanctuary is made desolate will not reach the full duration of a period of time of judgment. And the fact that it is expressed not in years, but in days, 2,300 days, reminds us and reminds the troubled Israelites that the Lord will not let this period extend a day beyond what the people can bear. Now, interestingly, this persecution, which fell short of seven years, was actually the most intense 
from the year 167 to 164 BC. A time of a time of approximately three and a half years. Now look at chapter 12, verse 11. That's what's mentioned here. This time is mentioned there. Daniel 12, verse 11. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days or 42 months or three and a half years. Now, we won't get into this imagery of the numbers anymore, but let me just talk about how this vision was actually fulfilled. After enduring persecution for about three years, Maccabees tells us that the Jews rallied around an outstanding leader. His name was Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus means the hammer. The hammer. Judas the hammer. And the hammer began a campaign of guerrilla warfare. And after three and a half years of intense, bloody fighting against Antiochus' Syrian army, Judas defeated the Syrians. Now, did Judas kill Antiochus? No, he didn't. At this time, Antiochus was away in Persia fighting another bloody campaign. And in the month of December of the year 164 BC, approximately around the same time that Judas defeated Antiochus' armies in Jerusalem, in December 164, Antiochus died a gruesome death. Second, Maccabees tells us that he was struck by an incurable pain in his bowels, that he was in excruciating pain, which caused him to fall head first from his chariot, and almost all of the bones of his body were broken, and he died shortly thereafter. Now look at the last line of verse 25. Last line, verse 25. Yet he will be destroyed but not by human hands, not by human power. With the success of Judas Maccabeus and the death of Antiochus, Israel became for the first time in 400 years an independent nation, and the temple in Jerusalem was reconsecrated. Okay. You might be thinking, great history lesson, John, but what in the world does this mean for us today? And it's certainly appropriate for us to ask what is the relevance for us today of a prophecy that was fulfilled so long ago before Christ came. How does this relate to living as a Christian today in this age which is antagonistic to God and the gospel? Now I recognize that this passage is not what we might call a go-to passage to find help from God. This, is, this isn't the thing you want to read in your morning devotions when you're looking for some little word from God. The last thing you want to know about is Alexander the Great and Antiochus. Epiph, epiph, epiphanies, I get it. But let's consider some important takeaways from this story, truths that I think will nurture our souls, build us up and nurture our souls. The first is this. God's purposes are sure. God, through Gabriel, told Daniel 400 years before these events happened that they would happen. And friends, they happened exactly as God told Gabriel they would. We read from Isaiah 46 today. Listen to these words again. 
God says, remember the former things, those of, of long ago. I made known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do as I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God's purposes are sure. You see, God says that his very credibility rests on the fact that he can declare the beginning from the end and the things not yet done from ancient times. Even more, his credibility as God rests on the fact that he purposes things and they happen exactly as he says. Friends, God doesn't look down the long corridor of time to see what's going to happen through human agency and then declare things to be. No, Isaiah 46 clearly claims that God decrees. And what God decrees, God does. And that's why things happen. God purposes, and that's why he knows the end from the beginning. In Daniel chapter 8, God gives a prophecy and, interp and an interp interpretation, and in doing so, he provides, I think, great encouragement to us because he demonstrates that he is the Lord of history and the king of all time, the one who orders all things to bring great glory to his name. He orders the rise and the fall of Persia. He orders the rise and the fall of Greece. He orders the rise and the fall of Alexander. He orders the rise and the fall of Antiochus. And all of this was to fulfill his purposes. Do you realize that in many ways, what happened in this period of time actually sets the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ into the world? The rise of Greece, the exploits of Alexander, the influence of other Greek leaders, including Antiochus, what happened? They all entrenched Greek thought and Greek language in the Far East. And our New Testament was written in, in Greek, the lingua franca of the day. It created the cultural setting into which the gospel of Jesus Christ would spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And after Antiochus was gone, God ordered the rise and the fall of Rome. And in the fullness of time, God ordered the coming of his son Jesus. God's purposes are sure. Hallelujah. And God has ordered everything for Christ's return. And he's ordered the individual moments of our lives so that as evil happens to us, God orders it for our ultimate salvation. God's purposes are sure. Number two, God has supreme power. If we go back and just scan over chapter 8 again, it seems to be focusing on human power. Horns, kingdoms, kings. The apocalyptic imagery of the horns suggests power. Verse 4 says that the ram, about the ram, no animal could stand against him and none could, his, could be rescued from his power. Verse 7 says of the goat, none could rescue the ram from his power. It seems to be all about human, political, and military power. 
The Persian army seems invincible until this Greek goat arises. And then the Greek goat, Alexander, is swiftly destroyed. His large horn is, is shattered. Then another powerful king arises and grows stronger, and he prospers in everything he does, in all of the evil that he does. This king appears to be invincible, but at verse 25 says that he is destroyed, but not by human power. In other words, no matter, no matter how great and menacing uh, an empire may appear to be, it is nothing more than an actor on the stage written by someone else. Kingdoms play the role assigned to them by God on the revolving stage of the history of the world. And then when its lines are over, it slinks off ignominiously into the wings, never to be seen again. The rise and fall of these real historical nations predicted accurately Centuries ahead of time by the Lord through his prophets reminds us clearly who is directing the course of history and who has the real power. Earthly kingdoms will rise and then they will pass away, but only the kingdom of God will endure forever. God has the supreme power. Amen. The message of Daniel 7 and 8 is good news to generations of God's people who've suffered and are presently suffering at the hands of earthly kingdoms, whether it's Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome, the Third Reich, or a multitude of other nations today that seek to, personate, to, to, to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. These empires look to our human eyes to be so powerful, and they appear to have no weaknesses at all. But friends, all they are is rams and goats, and they are in the hands of the Lamb of God who is all-wise and all-powerful. Hallelujah. God, number three, is sovereign over persecution and persecutors. This passage is about persecution. We can't escape that fact. In this vision, God was forewarning his people of what was to come the almost seven-year period of time in which three and a half years was characterized by horrific persecution and suffering was prophesied before it happened. Listen to this. This is a key, a key line. It's not original to me. Its time was measured and its duration was determined. Its time was measured out and its duration was determined. The question of verse 13, how long, O Lord, is answered? And even though this evil king attacked God's temple and attacked God's people, our sovereign God limited the number of days of persecution by destroying the persecutor. Now I want you to think back with me. Let's go back in the long history of God's people. Israel suffers at the hand of the Egyptians under Pharaoh for 400 years. But God was sovereign over everything that happened in Egypt, and he humbled Pharaoh by the sending of the ten plagues. Then at the height of the persecution inflicted by Nebuchadnezzar, God humiliated Nebuchadnezzar and brought him down low and showed him that he alone is, is God. Think now of Saul of Tarsus, who, who was breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus, and a persecution so intense that the Christians of Jerusalem were forced to flee the city and were scattered everywhere. And then while Saul is traveling to the city of Damas Damascus with, with orders in his hand to persecute the Christians there, he is knocked off of his horse, and he's blinded by the dazzling light of Jesus Christ. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is sovereign over persecution and over persecutors. As he showed his sovereignty by forewarning his ancient people and assuring them that he would limit the time of persecution and deal with the persecutor, so he will do the same for us as we see today the storm clouds of persecution arising on our future horizon. Let me just add one other thing, and you don't have to pay me for this. All the news that you've heard in the last 48 hours about rising coronavirus rates around the world, the possibilities of more lockdowns, and the emergence of a new variant in Africa spreading to other parts of the world. Listen, God is sovereign over COVID and all of its variants. Its time has been measured and its duration is determined. So let that truth govern your thinking, calm your hearts, and determine how you live today. Number four, God is present with us in all of the things we suffer. I don't know if you see it here, but, but hidden within this vision, hidden within the vision of, of the rise and fall of Persian Greece, and the emergence of this stern-faced man of intrigue, intrigue is, is an underlying reminder that we are not alone in our struggle, that God is with us through it all. Friends, God in Daniel 8 is not depicted as as passively surveying these conflicts from the comforts of heaven. He's not in the heavens thinking to himself, I just don't understand why people on earth just can't get along, why kings have to fight each other and depose each other, why evil men keep on attacking my people and making their lives so hard. No, heaven is engaged in what is going on. While Daniel is trying to understand what he's seeing there is a voice that comes from heaven that speaks and tells Gabriel to tell Daniel the meaning of the vision. God's forces are involved alongside us in the same struggle that we have. The God of Daniel isn't watching from a distance so far removed. He is involved with us in our daily fight and struggle. And those who assault us are at the same time assaulting the living God. And like the disciples in the boat in the middle of the storm, we cry out, Lord, don't you care if we drown? And we may know that our God does notice us, and he does care for us, and he is with us. He is not remote or absent, but present at all times in the midst of his people, in the midst of our suffering. Our fight is his fight too. Hallelujah. Number five, God gives us here a foreshadowing of the future. If while I was speaking about Antiochus, you were thinking in your mind, John, this this sounds like the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you were thinking that, your thinking is absolutely correct. Daniel's reference here to the abomination of desolation is not the only time that this is mentioned in the Bible. 500 years after Daniel used this phrase, Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 24 that the people in his day would see what was written and spoken of by the prophet Daniel about the abomination of desolation. And the people of Jesus' day who lived after the death of Christ witnessed the horrific events of 70 AD when the Roman general Titus came into the city and leveled the temple again to the ground and committed the abomination of desolation exactly as Antiochus did. And later the apostle Paul would write, 
and inform the Thessalonian believers that there is coming another abomination of desolation. An abomination of desolation type event is on the horizon of God's prophetic timetable. Antiochus foreshadows a finally, final ruler in, his, in history who will do this very same thing. And what Antiochus did is something of a paradigm of what happened in 70 AD and will happen again before Jesus returns. Antiochus is so important because he is the forerunner. He is, as it were, the first of a group of evil men who will exalt themselves and act like God. Men like Herod the Great, men like Titus, men like Adolf Hitler, and others, and they will all culminate in one final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, who, praise God, Jesus will destroy at his second coming. The sixth and the final point, and I know I've gone long, but I have to share this with you. God in Daniel 8 in some way points us to the desecration of the true temple. When Antiochus attacked God and desecrated the temple, he was unable, as it were, to get his hands on God. But nearly 200 years later, in the person called Jesus of Nazareth, the temple of God was desecrated by the sin and the rebellion of the human race. Jesus, God's temple, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, was sentenced by evil, Antiochus-like men, and hoisted upon a cross. Israel had rejected the Messiah, the Messiah that God had sent. And Israel's leaders aligned themselves with Rome, the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7. They aligned themselves with Rome and the forces of evil against the prince of life. They got their hands on him, and they handed him over to death, crying out, crucify him. Now, can you think of any worse abomination that could be committed than crucifying the living Lord of life. Friends, the cross is the ultimate expression of the rebellion of human beings. The cross is the ultimate expression of the hatred of the kingdoms of this world. The cross reveals that we too are the enemies of God, rebels against him. The crucifying of Jesus reveals the real darkness that remains in our hearts, a darkness and an evil like that of Antiochus. Yet even such an abominable rebellion and hatred could not thwart God's purposes. At the cross, Satan did his worst to Jesus. But it brought about what God had planned from the beginning. And three days later, God rebuilt the temple that the Jews and the Romans had desecrated by raising Jesus from the dead. And now through the power of the cross, the Lord is building a temple of living stones of people who've repented of their rebellion and embraced Jesus as their Savior and Lord. The cross, my friends, is the guarantee that God's plan and purposes will always prevail. Because of the victory won on the cross, the gates of hell can never prevail against the church. Hallelujah. Please stand. Father, in the... In this length of time, we've 
We've looked at a passage that has puzzled people for many years, and yet through the lens of history looking back and the help of the Holy Spirit, we can see that exactly what you said would happen did happen, and you gave to us all of these truths, as it were, these takeaways to nurture our souls and to calm our hearts as we seek to live out the gospel in this antagonistic age. Thank you that you are God supreme.